can take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. While you turn, I suppose that I will be honest with you. Last week, Steve preached at my request because I wanted another week to consider this particular text. And I did consider it. And I told Steve yesterday, as we spent some time together in the afternoon, <clears throat> that uh, I thought I would teach on something else. And I did. I had a whole other outline together. I don't do that very often um, because we have a pattern in our church of just working through whatever book, chapter, verse we're in until the end. But this one really does concern me. Not because I have a problem with what the chapter says. I just am afraid of introducing any kind of strife or conflict in the local church because of misunderstanding or disagreement. And that stuff, that idea really keeps me awake at night. Always has. Um, but nevertheless, we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And I didn't want to give anybody the impression that we should be afraid of God's word or moving forward. And so we're going to move through verses 2 through 16. I did, out of curiosity, look for other pastors who uh, are well known and who record their sermons online to see how they approach this. And I didn't listen to any of the messages because ultimately I, I'd already studied and read commentaries. But I looked at the dates to see when and how they covered this. The only one who I could find that had covered this was John MacArthur, who has preached through the whole New Testament. And he, in 1976, which is a long time ago for me, uh, maybe not for you, but for me, and uh, not for Allison, she was born in the 70s, but I don't think she's in here, so I might get away with that one. And I noticed... The glutton for punishment that he was, he spent three weeks in this chapter, and I thought that is really courageous to spend three weeks in 1 Corinthians 11. Some of you I see with your heads down and trying to figure out what in the world this is getting ready to talk about. I understand. We'll get there. But then I also took a little heart in the fact that he hasn't been back since 1976, so he must have got it out of his system the first time. Let's read verses 2 through 16, and I'll do my best to help you think through this. Paul writes, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things, and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man. The head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying having his head covered, dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, dishonors her head. For that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, then let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For the man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, 
nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as woman came from man, even so man also comes through woman. But all things are from God. Judge among yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. And I'd say there's at least a 50% chance that more than half of us have no clue what we just read. And that's okay. We're going to work through it verse by verse. But by way of an introduction, in this passage, we come face to face with the conflict that extends well beyond this passage. This conflict exists and has existed in every culture among all peoples since Genesis chapter 3. The conflict... A struggle between men and women is a very serious one. And I have three reasons why it's very serious. There might be more, but three that I could think of. One, the conflict is serious because it is deeply personal. A man wrestling with what it means to be a man, a woman wrestling with what it means to be a woman. These are very, very personal convictions. So personal, in fact, that many people are offended at even the idea that the Bible should have anything to say about it at all. But of course, a Christian should not and must not feel that way. The Bible speaks to the most personal parts of our lives because God himself is concerned with those parts. He is not only interested in our external worship, what we do here this morning, but he is a God who would raise us as his own children. So his leadership extends to the most personal parts of who we are. The second reason why this is serious is that the consequence of what we believe, the consequences are quite high. There are a great many men who seek to abusively subjugate women. And that has always been a threat for women in every society. The risk to women in these waters of this conflict is extreme. And so the consequences are quite high. And that makes this pretty serious. And the third reason I'll give you as why this is so serious is that there is really no way for your beliefs to stay private. We all will live our lives and our beliefs will come out in the way that we live. Now, I've given you three reasons why the conflict is serious, but I haven't spoken much about the conflict itself. So I'll lay out for you as briefly as I can the nature of this conflict. Again, briefly. First, God created man from the dust of the earth. Then, God created woman from the body of man. Then, both man and woman sinned. The very existence of mankind required that these sinning people live together and God has biologically built an attraction and a function for men and women to unite. But here's where the conflict begins. How then should men and women live in community with one another? And when I phrase it that way, 
It is sad to think that there should be a conflict at all, but there is one. And you can see the conflict rage in our own country. As Americans enrich women who will take their clothes off and dance and sing provocatively, while some say this is not a good example for our people to see, and others say this is a great example of liberation and sexual freedom. In the mind of one person, it is indecent and humiliating. In the mind of another person, it is empowering and healthy. So clearly, the conflict exists in our own country. And you can see the conflict rage in a place like Afghanistan. In the television reports of the young women who are now putting back on burqas and veils in the face of a Taliban takeover. And the unspeakable horror of the many girls who are going from middle schools that they were attending a week ago to being caged and sold in marriages to lustful men which is a nightmare that makes me yearn for the violent return of the Lord Jesus Christ to put an end to what we evidently were unable to do. This is what I mean when I said that this conflict is deeply personal, with very high consequence, and very public visibility. So, what should Christians make of the relationship between men and women? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 does not tell us everything. That is not what the Apostle Paul intends to do in this passage. He is answering questions from the Corinthian church. But he does tell us some things. And having observed the awful consequence of wrong thinking on this matter, both in the outright obscenity in the American West and also in the damnable violence against women in the Middle East, I am eager to hear from God's word on this conflict and I hope that you are too. I have heard enough from singers and politicians. I have heard enough from false religions of Islam and Hinduism. I have witnessed the disaster of the modern liberal ideas and the destruction of our current American identity crisis when it comes even to the reality of basic human biology. And now having become nauseated with the unhelpful and destructive guesswork of the leaders of our world, I am eager to hear from the creator of our world. He will surely say something that is more helpful than what we have been offered so far. Now verse 2 says, I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I deliver them to you. This verse is very important for us because it correctly classifies what follows as a tradition. Now, the passage itself will make that very obvious to us, but nowhere in this verse nor in the original Greek do we find the word teaching or doctrine. Paul had left the Corinthian church with a pattern of behavior for their worship time together. We also have a pattern for our worship. We have a pattern for the order in which we do things. You probably picked up on that pattern over time, but it is even officially printed and sent out to those who have leadership roles. We have our patterns and traditions. We have a pattern, generally, for the way that we dress. Some people don't like it. Some people don't think it's sophisticated or formal enough. Others think that it is way too formal and we ought to be more informal about it. But there is generally an acceptable pattern for how we come to worship. We have a pattern for where we sit, for who will speak, for who will lead. Patterns are not laws. 
Deviating from a pattern or a tradition is not in itself sin unless the deviation from the pattern itself involves a sinful act. With that said, patterns are established in what we do, usually with a good purpose. In the Corinthian church, Paul had left a tradition for how men and women should act in worship, and this was on purpose. In verse 3, he writes, I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Now, when he says head, he does not mean the brain in terms of thinking and intelligence. In fact, in the ancient world, they did not understand that the brain or the head represented the decision-making part of our anatomy at all. When Paul speaks of the head, he is talking about authority. And he is making a general creation-based statement for Christians to live by. I'll describe it to you in three simple points. One, God has given us his son Jesus, who was humbled and taking the form of a man, has become obedient to God the Father, so the head of Christ is God. Because Jesus, in the form of a man, represented and testified to the authority of God the Father. Two, Christ has called men to lead in the church. So, just as Christ himself did, men must humble themselves and become obedient to Christ and to God. Three, Christ has called women in the church to humble themselves as he himself did and become obedient to the leadership of Christ through men he has called to lead. Once again, in the church, thus becoming obedient to Christ and to God. This is verse 3 in a nutshell. Jesus became humble to the authority of God the Father. Men are to be humble to the authority of Christ, thus being humble to the authority of God the Father. Women in the church are to be humble to the authority of men who have been appointed for leadership, who themselves are humble to Christ, and thus being humble to God the Father. Now, I will pause to say a few things that should be obvious to everyone and maybe a thing or two that is not obvious. I will make these points quickly. One, our church follows this pattern. We are not, I am not, ashamed or embarrassed by that at all. We believe it's right, and we believe we do it rightly. Two, this is outrageous in the modern Western world. Three, Evil people have used this passage and passages like this to do evil things and to cover up evil things because evil people will find ways to do evil things and to cover them up. Four, no one should let evil people do evil things or cover up evil things in the church because God is not evil. And he has given us plain instructions against evil that he expects to be followed. And we should do what is right. And finally, five. And this is the one that may not be so obvious. Clearly, Paul is not saying that women are inferior to men in this verse when he says that the head of woman is man. Because he also says 
The head of Christ is God. And we know from the entire testimony of the New Testament, including the vast writings of Paul himself, that he does not mean to tell us that Christ is in any way inferior to God. This is not about inferiority. This is not about superiority. This is about who will follow the leadership of another in the plan and order of God. Christ being the example as he followed the pattern that God had demonstrated for himself by humbling himself and going to the cross. This is about the order of leadership, not skill or personal value. Verses 4 through 6. Every man, praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. For that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. Now, we will not get into what prophesying is here because we will hit that in the chapters to come quite thoroughly. Putting that off for now, let us observe that these are traditions for worship. So Paul is clearly speaking about behavior in worship where praying and prophesying are involved. Second, when he says that if a man prays or prophesies with his head covered, he dishonors his head, let's pause and make what I hope is a very helpful observation. This was not the tradition of the Jews. You might have seen the little hats that Jewish men wear when they pray. This head covering practice was observed in ancient days as well among the Jews. Now aside from this passage in the New Testament, we have no instructions either way about head coverings. So we might ask, why is Paul giving the Corinthian church a different tradition than the traditions of Israel? Well, Paul explains this tradition in several ways. And we'll get to those explanations in a moment. But here is a hint in verse 5 of what is happening here. In verse 5 it says, Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovers, uncovered, dishonors her head. Here's the hint. For that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. Now in Corinth, a shaved head on a woman was a symbol of prostitution. Not just in Corinth, but throughout the Greek world. Uncovering your head by shaving your head was a sign of prostitution, often temple prostitution, in service to one of the false gods in the city. The Corinthian church knew what this meant. No self-respecting woman, Christian or not, would have wanted a shaved head because of what it meant. When Paul says that a woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered is one and the same as a woman with her head shaved, I believe what he is saying is that both the woman who shaves her head in your culture and the woman who uncovers her head in the church is making the same cultural statement. 
The woman who uncovers her head in worship in Corinth is saying, I am rejecting the role that God has given me as a woman. The woman who shaves her head to designate herself as a temple prostitute is saying much the same. I am rejecting the role that God has given me as a woman. Now, be careful that you see what Paul is doing. He is applying the principles of God's word to the culture of the Corinthian church. See, what Paul is saying to the Corinthians only makes sense if you understand what it means for a woman to have a shaved head. If Paul was speaking then to an African culture where women shaved their heads routinely, such as exists in some Kenyan tribes, they would have no idea how to apply this because having a shaved head was nothing to look down upon in the first place. But Paul is speaking to a Greek culture in Corinth. If Paul were speaking to a Jewish audience where the men had been covering their heads for a thousand years, they would not have understood this either. And by the way, I personally don't think Paul would have or did say the same thing. Because just as Paul does not appear interested in forcing the Gentiles to adopt Jewish practice, I don't believe he would have made a rule for the Jews that in order for them to worship in the Christian church, they had to uncover their own heads. But in the city of Corinth, much as we see even in the Middle East today, women wore head coverings and men did not. That was true in the temple. That was true in the market. It was true in the church. It was true everywhere. Except something was happening in this Corinthian church. Something that rocked the boat enough that people decided to write Paul a letter about it and ask. The women who had worn head coverings in Corinth for their entire lives were suddenly taking them off. Why? Why would women who had worn a head cover in the marketplace and in the temples and in the fields and on the roads, why would women who had been trained to wear a head covering their entire lives, much like we see in Afghanistan today, why would they come into the church and suddenly start taking them off? The answer to the Corinthian church and to Paul is simple. Let me read to you now from Galatians 3. These are verses 26, 27, 28, 29 from Galatians 3. Written by the same Paul. Here's what he says. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ... There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. The same Paul who writes to us in Corinthians 11 wrote, that letter to the Galatians. In Christ, your race does not matter. Your economic position does not matter. Whether slave or free. Your gender doesn't matter. 
In Christ there is salvation for all and promise of eternal life and a rich inheritance for all, as Paul writes, heirs according to the promise. Greek people could receive the promises made to God's people in Abraham. Their race, their background was not disqualifying for them in Christ. Greek people could receive the promises God made to Israel through Abraham. Slaves who spent their entire earthly lives in bondage, who would never inherit anything from anyone, who owned nothing themselves, would become heirs to God's kingdom. Women who were treated as property, who themselves might be passed from one owner to another upon the death of their spouse in the kingdom of Jesus Christ, they would be heirs to be richly rewarded. Listen to me now. There was only one place in the entire grand city of Corinth where a person could go and see slaves being embraced as if they were the masters. And that was the church of Jesus Christ. That was it. There was only one place in the grand city of Corinth where women would be treated as equal citizens of the kingdom. The church of Jesus. That was it. There was only one place where peoples of different races, genders, and social statuses would come and sit together among each other and embrace one another and be commanded to love one another and to care for one another and be treated as equal citizens in the church of Jesus. That was the only place. The gospel of Jesus Christ does not enslave people. It liberates them. It liberates slaves. It liberates women who have been subjugated. It confronts racial prejudice. Historically, this position is unassailable. And anyone who would lay slavery or the abuse of women or racial injustice at the feet of Christianity or the gospel of Jesus has taken such a narrow, biased view of the influence of Christianity on the world that they could hardly defend that position in a fair and just court. Christ liberates men and women. Now, some of the women of Corinth were enjoying the freedom of Jesus Christ, but took it then one step further than they ought to have taken it. Perhaps some of the men had also gone too far. It appears that there are some who are now taking off the symbols of manhood and womanhood entirely, symbols that their culture understood, and now calling into question whether or not the church should recognize any difference between men and women at all. This for them is no longer a matter of equality. It is a matter of difference and whether or not there are any. Whereas their practice had always been for men to have uncovered heads and women to have 
covered heads in worship. Now some men might have been covering their heads while some would not. Certainly some women were uncovering their heads while others were not. To our culture, no big deal. Wearing a hat or not wearing a hat has more to do with what's fashionable or respectful or practical than anything else. To the Corinthian culture, the issue at hand was whether or not the Christian God, whether or not Jesus, recognized any difference between men and women at all. Well, Paul says that God does recognize a difference between men and women. And here is his defense in verses 7 through 10. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. In a nutshell, Paul believes in the creation account of Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. He has the audacity to believe it. He argues from that account that God created man from the ground in his own image. Which is precisely what it says. Then God allowed man the time and the opportunity to recognize his need for a woman. And then God created a woman from the man. Not from the ground as he had done with Adam. But from Adam he fashioned Eve to fill that need. Ergo, the conclusion. While both man and woman are made in the image of God as Genesis 1.27 very clearly states, there was an order to God's creation. And this, not by accident, but with design. Because of this created order, this created design, Paul argues that the Corinthian Christian women should continue to wear the symbol of authority, the head covering that they knew and understood in their culture. And he adds in verse 10 the strange phrase, because of the angels, which is weird. I find this phrase though particularly helpful. Let me tell you why. Let's remember exactly what angels are. Very simply, Supernatural beings under the authority of God. Supernatural beings under the authority of God. Some of us might imagine that if we were supernatural beings, we would be under the authority of no one. Some of the angels imagined that themselves. But they were created to be supernatural beings, yet under the authority of God. Let us remember how sin entered the world in the first place. A supernatural being, under the authority of God, approached a woman under the authority of man and told her that the instructions she had been given were actually an attempt to limit what she could become. Sound familiar? It does to me. 
In Genesis chapter 3 verse 4 and 5, Satan calls God a liar when he entices Eve to sin with these words, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. These instructions about these authority figures and what we should or shouldn't do are merely God's attempt to limit you from being what you might become if you stepped outside of them. You will not surely die. Your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. So when Paul says that Christian women should not reject the authority of godly men that God has given to the church to lead, he calls them to remember that there are supernatural beings who are watching, who themselves, though they are supernaturally powerful, honor the created order of God. And we should remember that too. In verse 11, Paul continues. Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as woman came from man, even so man also comes through woman. But all things are from God. I don't know if you see it, but, but to me it's very clear what Paul is doing here. He is concerned, I think, that we might hear him saying that God favors men more than women, or that men are more important than women, or that men might begin to feel more important than women, and that because Eve was created from Adam, she is somehow trivial to God's kingdom, not as essential, not as involved. And he immediately shoots all that down. God may have a created order, but if we say that women, woman, was created from man, let's also acknowledge the reality that not a single man other than Adam himself was ever born without a woman. Every man comes from a woman. So Paul's conclusion in the end of verse 12, all things are from God. You can only take the created order so far in its application. And the moment you start to devalue the life and worth of a woman, you are ignoring the creative work of God. Because it was through God's promise to Eve in the first place that there would be coming a Messiah by whom God would save the entire human race after man plunged us into sin. So I will repeat the moment you start to apply the creative order of God to demonstrate that women are less valuable or less precious or less meaningful to the plan of God, you are ignoring the creative work of God and exactly what happened. I think this is Paul's point in verses 11 and 12. Now verse 13, final verses. Judge among yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it's a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. Now, verse 13 is important, but we're going to come back to it. I want to consider Paul's argument here from nature for a second. 
He says, look at what is natural. Look at what even nature itself tells us. And I think by this he means that in most places, among most peoples in the world, a woman's hair is meant to be beautiful. It is a covering of beauty. It's grown to certain lengths. It is cut certain ways. Braided, curled, weaved. Often pieces of jewelry are placed in it. It has a particular representation as to the glory of who she is. You don't see the same thing in men. And when you do see a man growing out his hair and trying to make himself look beautiful in the same way as a woman, most of the time it is a dishonor to him. In other words, other men who see what he is doing don't say, Oh, you have such lovely hair, Brian. Instead they say, You look like a girl. That's not merely cultural. It speaks to the difference between men and women and how they present themselves in community. And that is Paul's point. My wife has let me cut my son's hair from the time he was little. I did it just the other day. He didn't like it. She was a little critical of the haircut when we came out of the bathroom actually and said, oh, you just did it all one length this time. And you know how I felt about that? I sure did. He's a man. I don't touch my daughter's hair. Uh, I wouldn't touch my daughter's hair. Their hair means something different to them than what I hope my son's hair means to him. Now, verse 16, if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God is a very important verse to this discussion and frankly many discussions that we have about practice and tradition in the church. This is basically Paul's way of telling the Corinthian church that this is what they should be doing with head coverings. And if anyone wants to have a big argument about it, that's not what we do in the Christian church. We don't have big debates about hair and clothing. They had a question for Paul about what they should do. He's answering the question. This is not a life or death issue. It's not going to cripple any of them to wear or not wear a head covering. And if anyone wants to throw a fit about it, that's not what they do in the church. We don't throw fits about simple practical things that are neither righteous or evil. We don't do it. To finish up here, go back to verse 13 and I'll make some closing points. Paul says this, Judge among yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? If head coverings were a universal command from God in the vein of the passage that John read this morning for us where you've heard that it said do not commit adultery, do not murder, don't steal. If head coverings were a command from God in the vein of don't commit adultery or don't slander would Paul be speaking like this in verse 13 when he says Judge among yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? And the answer is no. Now, 
We've established here that he is not really allowing room for a continued debate on the issue. So this judge for yourself statement is a little rhetorical more than an actual invitation for them to make their own judgment. But still, is this how God's work speaks concerning the essentials of moral and immoral behavior? It's not. I have no word of condemnation about head coverings. If you want to see my practice, it's pretty obvious. I have a wife and four daughters none of whom are wearing head coverings. My reasoning is simple. In our culture, the absence of a head covering is not a demonstration from Allison, my wife, that she is rejecting her role as a woman because of her Christian freedom. Now, if I were in the mission field, in a place where a woman without a head covering was making a statement of rejection against womanhood, then I might have a different approach. Because I would not want my family to make a statement to the lost people around us that in Christ, women and men have the same roles and there's no difference in how we approach living together. I would not want to go out of my way to make any such statement. That's not true. But, whether or not Allison does or doesn't wear a head covering communicates absolutely nothing to the people around us in Ohio and Indiana other than fashion. And I don't believe it communicates anything in the American church either. Someone might say, yes, but if we all started wearing head coverings, then it might begin to communicate something to everybody. And to that I would agree. It certainly would communicate something. But there is a tension there that you have to wrestle with and that I have to wrestle with. There is a tension. Do I have the right or the grounds as a Christian pastor to enforce a rule upon our congregation that women should wear head coverings in an effort to communicate authority in a way that is foreign to the world that we live in. I don't believe I have that right. See, I only have that right if 1 Corinthians 11 is telling me to do that. And I don't believe it is. What I believe Paul is saying here is, do not make a public rejection of authority in a way that the world around you will clearly understand. Because God has established differences and roles. So, the question on where you fall on this is really whether or not you see 1 Corinthians 11 as a command to go out and deliberately communicate something no matter how strange to the culture around you and educate by way of law in the local church people around you on differences that exist or whether or not Paul is saying do not upend cultural norms around you in an effort or in a way that might demonstrate under God there is no difference between men and women. I think the latter is happening. I think 1 Corinthians 11 is dealing with the spirit behind these men and women who are rejecting an already established tradition in order to communicate something that wasn't true about God. 
that he doesn't see any differences in roles between men and women. That's not true, but that's what they were communicating by rejecting this practice. Paul tells them simply, stop doing that. We do not want people to think that becoming a Christian is the end of gender. But I don't believe that 1 Corinthians 11 is telling all Christians everywhere to institute customs that are not recognized in the culture around us and then enforce them as rules on all the people in your church. I don't think that's what it's doing. You may disagree with me, but I am firm on this. And this will not be the only culturally dependent instruction that we find in our time together. Now, a final thought this morning. I wrestled with this passage for weeks, right up until the end. Marty taught the Sunday school class this morning just so that I could continue wrestling with this passage. I know what the passage says. I was not wrestling with myself about what the passage says. I am firm on that. The wrestling is about how you might hear what I say. And that is of grave concern to me. God help me if anyone hears me saying that women are inferior to men. That is a lie. That is not true. I don't believe that. The Bible doesn't teach that. And what if someone hears me and thinks that I'm saying that men are always right and so they should lead or that they're more right than women? That would ruin this message because we already know that is just not true. Everything else would lose credibility after that. And what if some part of this message paints me as some medieval tyrant with no respect for women and no regard for what they are capable of? All of these things are of grave concern and have weighed on me. I don't think that the passage says any of those things. I don't think that I am saying any of those things, but I worry about what might be heard. But at the end of the day, I know and believe that what God's Word says is good. I believe that faith in God offers better results than all of the misguided modern-day messages of the world. I believe your life will be much, much better and come under the blessings of God rather than the judgment if you by faith believe what God says in His Word. And whether or not I always enjoy it, Sunday arrives. And the clock strikes 1045. And we sing and we pray. And I stand up with the responsibility of teaching all of God's Word. And my goal in these moments is to honor Him, even if it means dishonor in the eyes of others. And I hope that is your goal too. To honor God by adhering to His Word, even if it brings dishonor upon you in the world. And I believe that that is where we live. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for Your Word. You are holy and right. What you have given us is all that we need for life and godliness and it is good. 
We do not stand, nor could we possibly stand, in judgment of you. We are finite, limited, unseeing and unknowing what happens beyond the survey of our very limited exposure to this world. You are infinite, timeless, all-powerful, all-knowing, and you have spoken to us. Thank you for your word. Help us to treasure it and to meditate on it and to do what is right. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.